I want to ask you to look, look off into the distance to a hill just outside Jerusalem. A hill shaped like a skull. It is called often Golgotha. And though it is the middle of the day, there is an unusual thick darkness. But yet as you look through the darkness, you can see on that hill three men hanging. The two on the outside are notorious criminals. And they've been justly sentenced to death on that Roman cross. The one in the middle has also been well known over the past three years. Actually rather famous. The healer from Galilee. And he's committed no crime. And he's done no wrong. And there are many people who have been healed by him and who have followed him and who love him. And yet, there he is, hanging. And you can see, as you look at him, a difference between him and the other two men. His body is completely bloodied. And if you look closely, you could see the marks from scourging coming around his back in open, gaping wounds. And his face is all puffy and bruised and battered. He's obviously been beaten. And on his head is a crown of big, pointed, thorns. And there is blood dripping down from his head because of it. Not only is his face all swollen and bloody, his head is bleeding from this crown of thorns. And yet, you just heard him tell his own executioners, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And as he hangs there for a while and you watch, you hear him cry, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Something He's called for Elijah and they try to give him something to drink. But you stand and you watch. And in a little while you hear him say, Father, into thy hand I commit my spirit. And he breathes his last. And you're left standing there perhaps with many and you think to yourself, why? What has this man done? He was a good man. Why did he have to die this way? This is the question that we take up this morning in our study. Why would God do this? This is the heart of the question. Why would God allow His Son? Why would God allow His Son to go through this? Now, we've already dealt with the question, why redemption at all? And we've seen the answer from God's Word that it is out of His mercy, His infinite love to unworthy sinners and also unto His glory that even that cross brings glory to God. And then last Lord's Day, we sought to answer the question, why the Incarnation? Why did Jesus come in the way that He did? And in there we started with the seriousness of sin. Sin had to be dealt with. God is a God of justice. And He demands payment for sin, which is real. 
and which really needs to be paid for because it has real consequences. And then we talked about because of the need to be separated from sin, that Jesus had to become because He was promised by the Father that He would send a Redeemer and He had to come by a virgin birth so that He would not be tainted with the sin of man. And so that's why the Incarnation. And also, as we saw from John 3.16, because of the sovereignty of the Father, that in love, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son to be born of a woman. But God so loved the world that He gave His Son. And the emphasis on that text is not so that whoever believes in Him would be saved, but that God sent His Son that you would be saved. And so today, we take up with that cross and seek to answer the question, why the crucifixion? I want to begin by asking you to turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. This, just by way of introduction, as we might say, Acts chapter 4, because we're seeking to answer the question, why would God do this? And you know that there are people who suggest that God never planned this, that this was done by the Romans or by the Jews, or it was plan B because the Jews rejected Jesus and it all fell apart and messed up and wound up with the crucifixion. But I suggest to you that that's heresy. As we read here in verse 27 of Acts chapter 4, For truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do not whatever they pleased, but to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. The cross was not plan B. The cross was the eternal plan of God from all creation. Some say that uh, this happened because the Jews rejected Him. Think with me for a moment. What if the Jews hadn't rejected Him? What if the Jews loved Him? What if everybody loved Him? What if they actually did make Him king? What if they all loved Him and there was no crucifixion? You would still be lost because your sin debt would not have been paid for. And now ask yourself this question. There are many today who are still waiting for the Messiah to return. Where are they still practicing crucifixion? How would Psalm 22 be fulfilled today? This was in the fullness of time. This was the eternal purpose of God. This was His plan, His time. And He sent His Son and sovereignly brought to pass His purpose even regarding the crucifixion. It was no accident. It was God's plan of redemption. And now we're going to see how. For that, I ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. As we see first, because He had to fulfill God's promised redemption of man. Because He had to fulfill God's promised redemption of man. Hebrews chapter 9. Now in this chapter... The writer has been showing the prophecy from the ceremonial law of Moses. Prophecy being all that it taught, all that it spoke of, all that it suggested to the followers of the nation of Israel and those who watched. And part of the Mosaic law was animal sacrifices representing the atoning for sin. 
And the writer is dealing with that. And he says that these things, these ceremonial laws, including these sacrifices, were a prerequisite. They were necessary. They had to be there because the sin of man had to be atoned with and they were a picture of what was to come. So we read first in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. But into the second only the high priest enters once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed, while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol of, of the present time, accordingly, both gifts of sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. So he's talking to them about what is taking place in the temple. And here's the point that he's making. That these are a symbol to the nation of Israel that your sin is real and that your sin really needed atonement. And that day to day they would be doing things in the outer portion of the tabernacle, constantly making sacrifices. But once a year on that special day of atonement they would go in to the Holy of Holies and the priest had to take blood, sacrificed blood into that holy of holies and sprinkle it on the altar as a picture to the nation of Israel that sin had to be atoned for. And the way that it had to be atoned for was through the shedding of of blood. In fact, if you look down to verse 20, it says, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you, and in the same way He sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood, and according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Day after day, week after week, and then in the Holy of Holies, year after year, the picture was painted to the nation of Israel that there has to be a sacrifice of blood to atone for sins. It was a prerequisite. But as I said, it was a picture. It was a symbol to the nation of Israel for all of those years of the cleansing of sin, as he mentions in verse 7, for the sins of the people. It was a picture of the cleansing of sins. However, we see also that it is 
provisional. It was a prerequisite. It was necessary. It was a picture, a symbol to the nation. However, it was provisional. Look at chapter 10 and verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year which they offer continually make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshiper, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had a consciousness of sin? In other words, he's saying to them, look, if these sacrifices actually accomplished the atoning for your sin, you wouldn't have to keep doing them over and over. If they accomplished your redemption, then you wouldn't have to keep doing this. They were only a shadow. They were only provisional. They would never do anything. But they were temporary, a temporary picture of what would be the real. Even as he says, they were a shadow of the good things to come. And not the very form of the things. Not the form of the things that would come in fulfillment of them. They were a mere shadow. Now this, he's talking to them about this whole sacrificial system of Israel in comparison to Christ. And so the prophecy of the ceremonial law of Moses is being contrasted to the excellency of the sacrifice of Christ. And this he says to them as he shows the reality as opposed to the shadow. He says here in verse 1 of chapter 10, For this was the shadow of the good things to come, the very form of things that can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, offered continually. They can't do anything. But in those sacrifices, they were a reminder of sins year by year. But it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 5, Therefore, when He comes into the world, He says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for Me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the role of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Here's the contrast. Here's the comparison. You have the blood of bulls and goats being sacrificed and offered constantly, year by year, as he says to them. They're a picture. The blood of bulls and goats. Goats can do nothing to accomplish the actual redemption of your sins. But Christ has come to do thy will. The promised Messiah has come. Now when he speaks here of the law, he is speaking of the ceremonial law, of course. And he connects back to what he has already said as the chapter begins with the word for... It's a conjunction which connects back to what he had been speaking of in chapter 9. Look at chapter 9 again and verse 11. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come. Remember what he said in chapter 10 and verse 1? For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come. What are the good things to come? Verse 11 of chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, He is the good thing to come. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, 
but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So here, Jesus is the one spoken of who is the reality as opposed to the shadow. Back to chapter 10 again, as he says in verse 9 now. Behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He takes away the first and fulfills it in himself with a real sacrifice. In other words, now... You don't need the blood of bulls and goats and calves. You have Christ who fulfills that ceremonial law given by God to Moses. Back to chapter 9 again. Not only is He the reality, the real thing that has come, but what He did was to accomplish Redemption, so we could say not only reality, but efficacy. Reality. He had actually done it. The blood of bulls and goats could never accomplish anything, but chapter 9, verse 11, He gave His blood. He offered up Himself, and in verse 12, to the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal Redemption. He offered up Himself on the cross as an offering to God. And He didn't just hang there and bleed. He accomplished something. He obtained eternal redemption. He did something. He gave His life on the cross. His very precious blood. So much better than the blood of a bull or a goat. It was the very blood of God. Offered to God. And that sacrifice, unlike the bulls and the goats, that sacrifice actually obtained eternal redemption. What they could never do his precious blood did. Look at how Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Look how he puts it down here in verse 17. And if you address as Father the One who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. We could also add futile things like calves' blood or goats' blood. Verse 19, But with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You were not purchased or redeemed with perishable things, but with the blood of Christ. Notice what Peter says, though, in this. You were redeemed by the blood of Christ. He actually accomplished Redemption. Unlike the blood of bulls or goats, which could never do it, you were redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The very blood of God shed on the cruel cross of Calvary for you for the sins of His people. One more thing here. Look back to our text, if you would, please, in Hebrews. Just pick up with it again in verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes 
and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. When we come to Christ, when He saves us by His grace and applies the finished work of Christ, the sacrificial work of Christ to our lives, His blood sprinkles us, covers us. We do not remain unchanged. It changes our lives. The folly, the ridiculousness of people who seem to teach that you can be saved and still live as a quote-unquote carnal Christian. Oh, I'm saved, but I choose to play golf on Sunday instead of worshiping with the people of God. Oh, I'm saved, but you know, uh, I don't practice it. I'm a secret believer. The excuses that people make But when you recognize the precious blood of Christ having been shed for you, it does not leave you unchanged or unmoved. Animals and the blood of animals could never accomplish redemption. But the precious blood of Christ redeems His people. And when that happens, they turn from their dead works to living works. I want us to to look at one other thing that he says here in verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Do you realize that He's making you cleansed. He's cleansing you from your sins as He dies upon the cross. His shed blood cleanses you from your sins. He makes you perfect. Perfect in holiness. Perfect in righteousness. Perfectly cleansed without spot or blemish. You know why? Because you have to be perfect to go to heaven. And you can't make yourself perfect. Christ's blood shed on the cross makes His people perfect. So we have the reality and the efficacy that it makes you perfect. Jesus' death on the cross obtained eternal redemption for His people. One more thing here, though, before we leave what He did. The finality of it. Look back again here to chapter 9. In chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, He entered through a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He did it once for all, for all of His people and for all time. Christ does not have to be offered again and again. Look at verse 24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that He should offer Himself often as the high priest does, Year after year. He doesn't have to do that. He's entered once for all and does not have to offer Himself often. Look at verse 28. Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Once. This thing that Rome does 
day in and day out, week in and week out, this thing that this Pope does is heresy. It is unchristian. And it is certainly unbiblical. These people are just saying, Whoa, what a great man. What a wonderful man he is. And they bow and they worship him. And what does he do? Sacrifices Christ again in a mass contrary to the Word of God, which says he did it once for all. What he does is he demeans the sacrifice of Christ as if it wasn't good enough. We have to keep doing it. We don't use bulls or goats anymore, but we use Jesus. It wasn't good enough when he did it on the cross. We have to continue it. We have to do it again. It's heresy. It's wrong. He's not a good man. He's the blind leading the blind. Christ doesn't have to be offered often. Look at chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily ministering, offering time after time the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But He, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. For by one offering... He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. There it is. We're perfected for all time. Made perfect by the one time sacrifice of Christ. Now how does that make us perfect? As He by His grace draws you to Himself, saves you by His grace, that sacrifice that He offered on the cross almost 2,000 years ago is applied to you. Redemption accomplished and applied by God. It's all of God. All of God. Now I just want to touch on two other reasons for the crucifixion. Yes, because he had to fulfill God's plan of redemption. And here's what that involved. Because he had to satisfy sin's debt. He fulfilled that picture given in the ceremonial law. But here's what he actually did. Romans chapter 5. Remember we said last week that sin was real. We talked about how the reality of sin and that because sin was real, God promised a Redeemer that would come and pay for sin because of the wickedness and the heinousness of sin. He's a God of justice. The sin debt had to be paid. And actually, look at chapter 6 first real quick. We even looked at this verse, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. You've got all this wages stored up. The wages have to be paid. The wages of sin is death. And they have to be paid. And you can't pay it. Your works aren't enough. You can't do enough. You can't make God happy and have Him ignore it. You've got wages. And the wages of your sin is death. You're going to have to pay for that. And the death is eternity in hell. That's the payment that you have to give in return for your sin. The wages of sin is death. Spiritual, eternal death. That's what he is talking about. Now, there's only one way that you can escape paying those wages. And that's if someone else pays them for you. Someone took me out to lunch last week. And I didn't have to pay. They paid for me. When we were leaving the restaurant, they didn't stop me and say, Hey, you have to pay! He paid. Oh, okay. Legal transaction. It has to be paid 
But if somebody else pays it with a legal transaction of payment, you're off the hook. And that's what we're talking about here. So back to chapter 5, that's exactly what Jesus did. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still helpless. What does that mean? While we were still helpless. While we were still sinners. You can't pay the sin debt. You're helpless. You can't do it. Your good works can't pay it. You can't pay it. You're dead in your trespasses and your sins. And you're helpless. But at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than now having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. What is the wrath of God? The wages of sin is death. Eternal death. The wrath of God. How can we be spared that wrath of God? The blood of Christ. Jesus died on the cross to pay our sin debt. What we owed. Our wages. And notice, remember what we said, why would God redeem anybody? The first, the first sermon in the series, why redemption? God, why would you do it? Why do what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care? Why? I'm a sinful man. I'm a wicked man. Why would you do this? And what was the answer? It's love. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ went to the cross and paid our sin debt. Our wages were paid by the spotless Lamb of God. And the text tells us further, that He reconciled us to Him. Verse 10, For while we were enemies, alienated. Remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man? I will put enmity between her seed and your seed. Enmity. Man is at enmity with God. We are alienated from God. Enemies of God. That's when you're born as we saw from David last week in Psalm 51, you're born sinners. The sin of Adam is imputed to everyone. We are all born alienated, enemies to God. We must be reconciled, brought back, brought back to love and fellowship with God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but also we exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to everyone, because all sin, and that's what we talked about, the sin of Adam. But now, through Christ, we have been redeemed, reconciled to God. I want to ask you to turn with me, if you would please, to uh, Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, speaking of the cross of Christ, in verse 13, the Apostle Paul tells the church at Galatia, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by going to the cross. Christ 
saves us, reconciles us, redeems us by his work on the cross. He had to go to the cross or you and I would have to go to hell. Why the crucifixion? If Jesus had not gone to the cross, we would not be redeemed. We would not be justified. We would not be reconciled. We would not be saved. We would be lost and under the wrath of God and have to pay the wages ourselves. So, He died in our behalf, in our place. He paid the price for our sin debt. He paid our wages. His death made you, made me, made all His people perfect. His death actually saves you. His death actually, as we saw, accomplished redemption. Obtained redemption. His death saves people. Save people from their sins. His people. His actual people. Actually saved. You know why I'm saying this so pointedly? Because I'm going to tell you what most people say today. Jesus died on the cross to make salvation possible. That's what people say. Jesus died on the cross to make it possible for people to be saved. And, and how does that happen? Well, all they have to do is make a decision. Come down an aisle. Raise a hand. All they have to do is seek. You know what the problem with all that is? Romans, the first three chapters, tells us that no one seeks after God. No one comes to God. No one wants Christ. Everybody thinks people are just dying to get saved. That's not true. No one seeks after God. So here's my question. If His death upon the cross made salvation possible, what if nobody believed? What if nobody ever believed? What if nobody ever cared? Then Jesus' death on the cross, His incarnation, and His crucifixion were a big waste of time. They meant nothing. Nobody believes? That means He did it for nothing. The point is, Jesus did not die to make salvation possible. Jesus died to save people. To accomplish redemption. This is all that, think about all that we've been seeing. He actually obtained eternal redemption. He redeemed you. He saved you. He justified you. Who's Paul talking to when he says you? The church. Who's he talking to when he says he actually obtained redemption? The church. Whoever believes in Christ obtains salvation from the finished work of Christ. Whoever's heart God opens to believe the truth obtains redemption that was secured on the cross 2,000 years ago. He actually saves people on the cross. I should say saved people. He actually, purposefully, obtained redemption. His death did not make salvation possible. His death actually secured salvation for all who will believe. He saved His people.
With that in mind, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 again. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. People, this is what Paul calls of first importance in our faith. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins. He does not say He died to make salvation possible. He does not say that He died and if only you believe and choose Him, you will obtain that redemption. No, He says this is of first importance that Christ died for our sins. He actually paid for my sin. The penalty that I deserved, the hell that I deserved, the judgment that I deserved, Christ had me in mind on the cross and paid my sin debt, specifically my sin debt. Think about that for yourself. Because if you're saved, that's what happened. He had you in mind. He paid for your sin. All of them. On the cross. You see, salvation is personal. It's not just ethereal. It's not just out there. It's personal. God redeems a people out of His love. Out of His love. Jesus pays their sin debt on the cross. Personal. Salvation is personal. I said I just wanted to touch on two other points. The last one I have to go to very, very quick. Let me just say though, before I do, Jesus, as I said, died for all of your sins. And just keep this in mind. He even died for the sin of unbelief. He even died for the sin of unbelief. Because everybody says, oh, Jesus died for everybody's sins. Everybody's sins. He died for All they have to do is believe. Unbelief is a sin. Unbelief is a sin. It's a violation of several of the commandments in the moral law. First one, I'm the Lord thy God. You have no other gods before me. You've got to believe in Him. To, to not believe in Him is a sin. So, if Jesus died for all the sins of everybody, and all you got to do is believe, well, what if you don't believe? Well, you still go to heaven then, because He died for all the sins. Or else He missed one, and He didn't. He died for all the sins, including unbelief. All the sins of all of those who will ever believe. And no one will ever be turned away who comes to Him. Now, I must, must close quickly. One last thing. We said that He died because He had to fulfill God's plan of redemption given to the nation of Israel through the law of Moses. He had to die to satisfy our sin debt. And He had to die to satisfy Himself. To satisfy Himself. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. You recognize this chapter. Speaking of God's redemption. Verse 4. Surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening of our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging we are healed. For all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Talking about redemption, right? But I want you to look over to verse 11 and see what he says. As a result of the anguish of his soul, that is the accomplishing of redemption. 
as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. He will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. You know what that's saying? It's saying that he will suffer on the cross to redeem a people, but when he has those people redeemed, he will be satisfied. How could he be satisfied if he missed one? He wouldn't. But he shall see the fruit of his suffering. Every single one for whom he died will be saved. One more stop. Hebrews again. Hebrews chapter 12. And we're done. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witness surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. What would that be? The joy set before Him you. The joy set before him was to see his people saved and to return again to the Father and prepare a place for them. He goes on to speak about him sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He goes back to the Father after accomplishing redemption, knowing that His people will join Him. And that, as hard as it may seem to be to believe, the fact that you, when you die, go to be with Christ, brings Him joy. That's hard for us to understand or or to, to think about in those terms. Because He brings us great joy. But yet He endured the cross for the joy of spending eternity with you. So why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did He hang there and die? Why do we see Him hanging on a Roman cross? Because He had to fulfill God's plan of redemption shown in the ceremonial law. Because he had to satisfy the sin debt of his people and because of the joy set before him to see you in heaven. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray.